so dehumanizing. In many of those situations, I don't feel like a person. I feel like a piece of meat that some milk fell on. And you go to the rabbi and say, what do you do with it? But being able to go into shul, and in shul, everyone's doing the same thing, right? I have a sitter like everybody else, I have a homage like everybody else. But not feel the weight of the secret and the toxicity and the what if they know and what can I say and when can I not say. I can just be allows me to be there. And again, and I understand there are people going to say, but how could they give you an aliyah? I'm not here to answer your halakhichayos, but I want rabbis and therapists and maybe parents of LGBT kids or people grappling themselves to just think about what you do to people. And it's not just LGBT people. I'm just speaking from my experience. When you say to them, you're only here if you keep a secret. Your family's only here if you keep a secret. This is Listening to Understand, where sensitive Jewish truth seekers gather in a safe place for candid conversations on challenging topics. When we listen to truly understand and not in order to respond, we can replace judgment with curiosity and open our hearts to every Jew, regardless of their personal choices. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm Atena. Let's get started. I want to start with a huge thank you for everyone that reached out, that shared, that gave us their insight on listening to Understand Podcast. The outpouring feedback is mind-blowing. We reached number four in Jewish podcasting on iTunes, number four. This is the testimony for how much this podcast is needed, how much we need a safe place to have difficult conversations for Jewish people that are truth seekers. We recorded this episode almost a year ago. This conversation that I have with my friend Mati was one of the reasons why I started listening to understand. I said, this conversation needs to be held in a place where people are willing to listen to a different experience than what they are used to hearing, what they are expecting, that we can listen with a full heart to what they went through in order to create more awareness, more communication, lack of secrecy, lack of shame. When I first recorded this episode, it took me about a week to bounce back from the amount of pain I was hearing while I was listening and recording this episode. It was so heartbreaking for me to know that we are a Jewish community that is full with pain of people that feel alienated, ostracized, unwelcomed, feeling less than. One of the big reasons I decided to start this Listening to Understand podcast and community is to be able to have these conversations so we can welcome more Jews and not judge and to hear with curiosity, maybe even change perspective. Now, the black and white thinking this episode is not for you. Not for you because we're probably not going to change your point of view. And we're not here to change your point of view. We're here to share for those that are curious, those that want to do better, those that are looking to live with truth and authenticity of what it means to be accepting as other Jews. Not in order to label, not in order to point fingers, but to hear other perspectives and say, okay, what can I learn from this story that can make me as an individual show up better for my family, friends, community, and God for myself. 
What could we do better? How can we do better? And I think only through these conversations and stories can we have insights into what it's like to be so afraid to share stories and living with such fear of judgment and with such fear of being alienated from communities and families. And I am welcoming you and I'm asking you if you're going to stay through this conversation, please stay here with curiosity and empathy and with very little judgment. I know it's going to be something hard to hear and I understand that, but we created this place in order for us to do a little bit better and to learn from other people's experiences and how we can show up in our communities with more compassion, kindness, and less labeling and less judgment and removing the part of us feeling that we need to be God for others. And maybe it's time for us to go inward and say, what is my job in myself versus how can I label others in order to protect myself? My prayer is that this conversation will bring healing, maybe insight, and hopefully more unity within the Jewish community. There is a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot that I'm going to quote. Al tadun et ad don't judge your friend, and it's really al-tadin, but we say al-tadun. Don't judge your friend, which means a fellow Jew, until you stand in their place. Until you stand in their place, we usually explain that until you understand what it's like to be them. With all the perspectives, their family, their community, their emotions, their traumas, their strengths, what is it like to be them? And we will never know chemically, physically, emotionally what it's like because everybody is born into something with their capability abilities, with their abilities, with their strengths. And a person is really a measure of not only himself, everything around it. So basically, Pirkei Avot is saying something brilliant. Don't judge anybody until you stand in their place. And that means you will never stand in that person's place because you'll never know what it's like to be them. And I always wondered about this because I feel really maybe the Mishnah is saying, Al tadun et limkomo. Another word for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for Hashem is makom, hamakom. This is my insight and I love it and it feels so home for me. Until you're God, until you know everything, emet truth, and you are the ultimate knowledge and understand everything from all perspectives, only God, Mekomo, is capable and has a place in Din, in Tadun. And I love this insight because it removes us from being the judge. We can make personal decisions, but we can't cast judgment. And I am wondering if we can take this insight of remove the God part that we feel that we need to do for others and say, I don't know. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to truly understand what it was like like for them, because I'm never going to be them. So I'm here to listen, but not cast judgment, because I am not Mekomo. I am not God. Thank you for taking time to listen, and thank you for being part of listening to understand. We are excited to have a returning guest, Mordechai Salzberg also known as Mati Salzberg. We had a very popular episode that we recorded, what was it, Mati, a year or two ago? A year and a half ago, two years ago. Sorry. Yeah, it was episode 187, The Fatal Price of Secrecy and Shame with Sexual Abuse on the Hope to Recharge podcast. Mati is a therapist. Can I say in the Orthodox community, like that you serve mostly... Yeah, I work primarily with the Orthodox community, yes. The Orthodox community. And we discussed in the previous episode how secrecy and shame can really lead to personal and family fatal stories. 
And there was a very popular episode. I think we published it right after Chaim Walder died by suicide. And we were talking specifically about molestation. I think the reason why it was so popular, because from the remarks that I was getting and the feedback, I was getting that a lot of people said, thank you for opening my eyes. Now I know how to speak to my children. Now I know what to be careful of. Now I know how I could be part of the story and what I could do better with my children to protect them, to educate them. And what part of myself can I bring into the community to create change that secrecy and shame really, really destroys humans. I was just speaking to a friend of mine that her son was groomed and molested. And she right away went to yeshiva kid. Mm. and right away went to the authorities. Good for her. But that's so hard to do. Very hard to do. A lot of courage. Yes. And she was saying that she was going to a lot of rabbis and school faculties. And she said, we were getting so many different advices. Like, what should we do? And she said, I had to tap into myself and say, what's the right thing? What am I supposed to do as a mother? It doesn't have such a happy ending, but I'm not going to get into it now. But she was saying that the inconsistency and the lack of awareness of what to do and the shame factor that comes with that was so much of the mental health decline of the family themselves as a family. And she was talking about how they just like lost themselves and they didn't even know how to start. And I, I kept on saying, wow, it was so important that we recorded that episode just to bring awareness to parents. And it's a very scary experience to go through it and not have the tools. So now we have. Mati, I'm going to call you Mati on this episode, okay? Mati is a dear friend. I met Mati, I think, 18 years ago, and we'll discuss on this episode how we met. He's a dear friend of mine that we always felt safe to share our opinions, even if we didn't agree with our opinions. We felt like we were listening. Back then, I wasn't such a listener, but I was definitely somebody that you can... Open my big mouth, yes. Yeah, push the limits with me and confide and just be open with even if I won't agree on every topic. And recently, I reached out to Bhatti and I said, are you willing to share your personal story on secrecy and shame? And I think it was like a year ago, you said, I'm not ready yet. And then right after Passover, you said, I think I'm ready. And I said, so what happened and what changed? So before we go into the story, Mati, what happened and what changed that you said, I'm ready to share your personal story? I think it's something that's been a long time coming. And I think the piece that has finally uh, made me feel, yes, ready, but also why it's important and it's worth taking the risks anyone takes when they make themselves so vulnerable in such a format is because I'm very much experiencing the second generation impacts of this on my children right now. And as a parent, we all do this thing where I can tolerate it, but I, I can't tolerate watching my kids go mm -hmm. through it. It's obviously it's deeply painful for me and for my ex-wife, but it's also cause for a lot of reflection and conversations with my kids. And, and I, I have specific permission from one of my children to speak about her experience. Their experience is their experience, but I will just say as their parents seeing the tendrils of this toxic secrecy and shame now really impacting them just makes me feel like, okay, I, I, I am aware that I'm exposing myself and I'm aware that these are topics that are uncomfortable to speak about. I'm aware that these are topics that many of your listeners may disagree with the choices I've made. 
I think ultimately, and I've known for a long time, it's important. I, again, I think somehow I was trying to protect my children. And I think also specifically seeing how that kind of backfired in our experience as a family was very well intentioned. Hindsight is always 2020. So it's not, I don't say that in the spirit of beating myself up or my ex-wife up, but it, in many ways it did backfire. And I just feel it's time to, to speak out loud about my experience in the hope that it can help other families and other individuals struggling specifically with my secret, which I'll name in a minute. But just in general, as you said, and we were talking before we started recording, this is not, for me, I don't need this to be about my specific issue. Yes, I have things to say about what I struggle with, but I, I want this to really be for people to take a deep breath and just hear what it is like to feel like you need to live with secrets and how toxic that is and how that affects individuals and families. And also how hard it is to try to find belonging where you don't belong and try to fit in or like the difference between belonging and fitting in with the secret and still stay true to certain parts of you that feels very, very connected to the belonging of the community and how they could be so toxic for each other, living with secrecy, with non-belonging when you yeah. want to belong. And I feel very grateful that you feel safe to share it on this platform. And I do want to ask the listeners, this is not an easy topic and it's not a topic that's easy to even speak to. Brene Brown says your trauma or your pain is as large as your secret yeah. or something like that. Now, again, it's not that Mati lived in a secret. He didn't shout it from the rooftop. He was very, very respectful for people around him that asked him to li live in the secret. But it's not like he lived in the secret to fool the world. He was doing it like as a feedback of what the world was asking, right? So I just want to say, it's not, oh, Mati was like a double standard. He's not a double standard. Whoever knew Mati knew Mati. And we decided that we're going to share it with the audience that they could really listen. To listen closely, not to respond. We're listening to understand, not to respond, to have a perspective of what it was like to live through it and 2020 hindsight. What did Mati learn from this and what he wants to share with the world? So let's get a little bit of a background, Mati. Give me a little bit of a history, a history class up to, I would say, 25, 26, getting married, first children. So I grew up in Queens, New York, in a right-wing, black hat, orthodox family that had a Hasidic component as well. Part of a close-knit community, my parents were very active members of a shul. I was the oldest child and very stereotypical good boy oldest child. Perfect student, very much the stereotype of a firstborn son. The Bechar. The Bechar, very much the stereotype of a firstborn son. Yeah. And... I grew up in a family that valued Judaism, um, that encouraged me to take my Judaic studies seriously, also encouraged me to get professionally educated as well. Very much the phrase that we use, balabatish, meaning somebody who was very well steeped in Judaism, but also was a professional, would be able to support myself. And as I grew older, so I grew up, it was a relatively small community at the time in Queens. It's bigger today, but it was relatively small. When it came time to go to high school, my parents and I chose to go to Brooklyn, to a big 
more mainstream right-wing yeshiva for high school. So I went from an elementary school where I graduated from a class of 11 into a high school where the ninth grade, I think there were 90 kids, three parallel classes. There was an A track, a B track, and a C track. And I was in the A track and I was finally, the hope was that I'd be in an environment where I would academically flourish for the first time. When I started high school was when I first started to become aware of differences in my development around sexuality. And something that is really important to me that I, I for people to at least listen to um, and to understand, right? Because when it comes to the whole notion of LGBT identity, and when it comes to this idea of coming out, the world is a very different place in 2023 than it was in 1987 when I started high school. And I think one of the ways that I have felt very misunderstood, and I speak to a lot of other LGBT people of my generation, that this is something very much we feel in common, that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. And I understand why people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. But I also think it's important for people to listen to what the experience When I, as a black hat, yeshivish, 13, 14, 15 year old began to notice that something was different about what I was attracted to sexually. There were a million reasons why I couldn't really articulate that to myself. One is that I was in a community that didn't talk about sex or sexuality in the first place. I was in an old boys school. I was in a school where I would be thrown out for talking to a girl, let alone touching a girl. I wasn't having these experiences where I was in co-ed settings and people were starting to date and I'd noticed something was different. Right, It was easy to notice things and then put them away because I didn't have to deal with anything practical around it. It was all theoretical. So that's one piece of why it wasn't something that I let myself articulate to myself. The other was the terror at the time. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. At the time that I was coming of age sexually, to be gay felt like a death sentence. And I was a very aware. It was pre-internet, but I read newspapers, I read books. Like I was a very aware child, a teenager. And so gay equaled death. There was a lot of very negative messaging coming from any kind of religious borders. AIDS is a punishment for gay people. It would be abjectly terrifying to consider that I was gay. And then the biggest fear of all is that certainly 1987, 89, 90s, to be a from black hat wearing kid and to contemplate what coming out would do to my life, right? Because you're very much, that's one of the beauties of that community is that you're very much on a track, right? I was going to go to high school. I was going to graduate high school. The plan was to go to Mary Soil, a rabbinical college in Baltimore that also had a program at University of Maryland, spend time learning full-time in yeshiva, go to college at nights and weekends, get my bachelor's degree, start shit updating, right? Serious marriage-focused dating at 21, 22 find a wife, build a family. That was the path that was laid out before me, especially as the firstborn son. That was very much my parents' desire, very understandably. And the thought of deviating from that, it wasn't even that it was terrifying, it's that I couldn't let myself deviate from that. That was the track I was... Like you suppressed it because it wasn't an option. It wasn't an option. So to say, because I've had people say to me, some in the spirit of understanding, some honestly in the spirit of accusation, how could you not have known? Didn't you know? Weren't you? And I feel like it's a question that doesn't really take in what the experience of being in 17, 18-year-old boy in the 90s grappling with his sexuality 
given the environment, given the reality I lived in, given the things I didn't have to do. Again, you're not around girls. I didn't have to really fake it, right? It's much easier to say, oh yeah, I wish I could than it is to be in a setting where I have to ask a girl to go to the prom with me because then it's much more real. So you're saying you didn't have the testing to say, wait, maybe I have other experience. I don't even know. I also did this thing that I now understand very well as a trauma therapist. It's called disassociating. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to say this, but I think it's important. I had no sexual experiences with any boys before I married my ex-wife. I never touched another boy or man age appropriately sexually before I married my ex-wife. And I think that it's important to talk about that because it allowed me to conceptualize my attraction as being just about pornography. And so because I had this reality, which was my lived reality, that I was looking at images that were gay, but that I was not, and it was going on in Yeshiva. There were, every year, there would be a couple of stories that would come out to you guys were caught together in camp, but I never let myself go there. Now, in hindsight, I am very well aware that at every stage of life, elementary school, high school, and then Mary Israel, there was someone I was in love with. In love or attracted? No, in love. Really? As a therapist, you'll say that big word in love? Yeah. There was a relationship that was romantic in nature. I mean, in love, again, in elementary school, whatever love is, but there was a relationship that was romantic in nature. That you both knew, you're saying, or just you? That's my question. Was it your feelings or was it a relationship that was back and forth? Was it a real relationship or was it emotions in your heart? I will say this. So it's something that I have spent a lot of time trying to unpack in my own mind as the years have gone by. What I want people listening to understand, right? So we're getting into the late 90s here, or the mid 90s, when the time for me to go into shit updating started. And again, it was a very intense friendship is how I experienced at the time. I did not let myself see. I'm talking to you in hindsight, understanding what it was looking back at it. You did not know what it was at the time. You just thought it was my best friend, somebody that gets me, understands me, and I could connect to. And part of that hiding it from myself was never even allowing myself to imagine, let alone doing, crossing a physical line. with. It wasn't even something I let myself contemplate. Can I just ask you if this is a correct statement? If anybody's listening to this, maybe a teenager, and they're saying, is what I'm experiencing, is this a sexual interaction or could it be a deep relationship that's not sexual? Oh, it could be. Like it could be. You're saying 20 hindsight, knowing what you know of yourself today. That doesn't mean that every relationship that's deep and meaningful and a love relationship has to be on a sexual. No, no, 100%. Yes, 100%. But the thing is this, if I spent my... Pesach, as I did for multiple years, waiting for the phone to ring and him mm. to call. There was a three-month period, I don't even remember why it got so intense, where I literally vomited after every time I spoke to him. Wow. In hindsight, I think what's important to understand is that I couldn't let myself see it. And as I got closer to that shit-up page, there was this anxiety because I knew something was off. I knew that I was looking at gay porn. But I also knew because I kept telling myself, but I'm not attracted to anyone I know. But I've never done anything with that. Every year, some guy got kicked out of camp because he was fooling around another guy. That was never me. And so I was confused. And I was confused in a way that I needed to be confused for myself. 
at that point, I had started opening up to one of my rabbinim in Baltimore about other stuff in my life. And when it came to this, I hit a wall of shame. And I basically asked him if he could arrange for me to see a therapist in Baltimore. Behind my parents' back, someone else paid for the therapy. This part of the story is really important. And I, I went to see this individual. And I saw him once, twice. My memory is three times. It could be two or three times. And I literally could not speak. And at the end of the third session again, whether it was second or third, I don't remember. The next part I remember vividly. At the end of this third session, he said, I see you're really struggling with what you're trying to work on. How about you write it down for me? Which, from that perspective, was a great suggestion, right? And I can see so vividly, he handed me a post-it notepad. And I remember pretty much word for word what I wrote, which is that I look at gay porn. I am not, I think I underlined the word not, I am not attracted to anyone I know. And I have never underlined again. I have never touched another boy sexually. Why do you think you highlighted those? I needed that to be true. I needed whatever I was saying to be clear. Your experience. You didn't want them to start a whole story in their mind that was not true. You wanted them to meet you exactly where you were. Except, I will never forget this therapist's reaction, because he picked up the paper. And remember, for me, this was the hardest thing I'd ever put out there. Talk about secrets and shit. He picked up the paper and he said, huh, it's not really my area of expertise. I'll have to ask a colleague. I'll get back to you next week. No, wow, that must have been really hard for you to share. Right? Nothing, just that. And that was the longest week of my life because I felt someone convicted for murder when the jury goes out. To me, it was, so this man is going to tell me next week, can I get married the way I think I can or not? And when I came in the next week, he said to me, I spoke to a colleague. He told me not to worry. Date a woman, get married, you'll be fine. Which was exactly what I needed to hear, which is what I wanted to hear. Wait, wow. Yeah. And when I think back on it in hindsight, it's both the lack of emotional acknowledgement. Validation. And at the same time, to my 19, 20-year-old self, it was exactly what I wanted to hear. He gave me permission to keep it conceptualized that way. So when people in my life have either asked me with kindness or confronted me, how could you marry a woman when you knew? When you are in a community that is telling you in a million ways this can't be and telling you that if this is going to be you're out you're off the track you're out of the community and again at the time you're going to die of aids and you deserve to die of aids right it's not something i could let myself know you're going from one session to the other holding your breath is he going to give me freedom like this or like that it's basically my freedom that i'm afraid of or the freedom that i'm looking for because it's easier way out right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He gives you the freedom that's a lie to you, and you know it deep down. But at the time, I didn't. Like, that's the thing. But it was something that you were struggling with. It was an inner tug of war. That's why you went to a therapist, right? You went yeah. because you were, were having a hard time living with it, and you needed clarity, and you couldn't speak and to And he your... gave me the clarity that I wanted, so I believed it. And for you, that was enough? That's my question. For you, that was enough. You didn't say, but can I speak to you about this experience with this person? What person? Remember, there was no person. But you said that you felt something towards a person. I did not understand it that way at the time. I'm glad you're asking that question because this is helpful for me. Because in your mind, you're like, how could you not connect that to this? And I want to say to you as clearly as I can, I did not. 
as clear as it seems to you right now, and honestly to me too, at the time in 1995, I could not let myself see it. Did you want to know why you were looking at gay porn versus... No, I was very happy to hear that it was an isolated issue that I could work on. And maybe I did work with him for a little bit on reducing the behaviors, almost like treating it like sex addiction, which by the way, is something I see very commonly until today in the Orthodox community, that kids that are struggling with their sexuality, they try to push them into the sex addiction box quickly because then it's behavioral, it's not identity. Right. So you can fix the behavior problem and get married. Right. But your clarifying question is helpful because it is hard. I, I want to be clear. I understand why it's hard for you, even you, as much as you know me and you're open-minded and you're, it's hard to wrap your head around it. Wait a minute. So you vomited when you spoke to this guy and you're waiting for his call, but you didn't see a connection between what you wrote on that post-it note. I did it because I couldn't. Because if I started to see the connection, everything fell apart. Everything fell But my question is, like, how did the therapist not want to know more about this experience for you? Tell me more before we make a diagnosis with a colleague that never spoke to you, that probably just saw the piece of paper. I understand what you're saying, but it's unconscionable. I, I don't want to dwell on this anymore, honestly. Okay. Unless... Okay. So then you're like, okay, I got my Heksher to get married. I got my staff to get married. And so I started the process of dating. Now, at the same time... And you didn't share this with anyone else. No best friend, no parents, no mentor, nobody. Nobody. Okay. At the same time, I also made a shift in terms of what I wanted to do for career. I was going towards a bachelor's degree in accounting, and I knew that I wanted to do something with people. So some of what happened in terms of that was healthy, and some of it was part not letting myself see what I couldn't see. I then had an experience in Columbus, Ohio, where I went as a last-minute replacement for as a speaker for a weekend to follow up on, there's a program called the Seed Program where they send boys from yeshivas to like less established Orthodox communities across America. And there had been one in Columbus, Ohio the summer before. One of the winter speakers dropped out. I was someone who never struggled with public speaking. So someone was like, oh, ask Mati. I went and I fell in love with the community and I fell in love with the idea of teaching. I, I love the warmth of the non-New York insular community. I love the non-judgmentalness, the fact that there were all kinds of people. It wasn't but I also found a way to hide from myself by creating a public persona. One of the things that I began to do when Columbus started to fall into place was that I very subconsciously understood that if I could be Rabbi Salzburg, if I could use the talents that God had given me for public speaking and explaining things, I didn't have to face myself because I'm always facing other people. And a lot of people who struggle with identity and secrets and shame do this. We create public personas. Or any anxiety, right? Yeah, public personas are very useful. I took mm. extreme degrees. So by the time I started dating my now ex-wife, I finished the degree in accounting to make my parents happy, but the plan was to go into Kiru, into Jewish outreach. Mm -hmm. And so we dated, we got married. How old were you? I was 22 when we got married. 22? Yeah. Was she the first girl you dated? No, I was dating. It's interesting. And again, I dated for a while. I started dating really young because I was this stellar good boy. And again, in hindsight, something did hold me back. She wasn't the first person I came close to getting engaged with. I actually broke up with my now ex-wife while we were dating. Mm. There was a something holding me back. But again, it wasn't anything I could articulate. You didn't know. You didn't say to yourself, Mate, maybe you're gay. No. No. 
No, as we're talking about it, I'm in the memory now. It, from a place of memory, I have no problem saying it in my life today that I'm gay. But in the memory, I felt a little like PTSD shudder. But you can't say this. I got married. We were living in Israel. I was in Eisha Torah as an outreach yeshiva. I was I got smicha in Eisha Torah that year. And Columbus had started a full-time kollel, and we were recruited to join that kollel after we were in Israel for one year. My oldest daughter was born that year. Getting married made keeping the secret for myself a little trickier because there were clear intimacy issues from day one of the marriage, literally day one of the marriage. For you or for her, for both? For me. And so what began next, right, we were married for eight and a half years, was really an eight and a half year process of me constantly spinning my wheels to invent reasons, not invent, right, to, to look for other reasons why I was struggling with sex and intimacy, which were true based on childhood stuff, based on developmental stuff, but was all constantly cycling away from the actual truth and keeping the secret from her. I also at that point, sadly, began to cross the line. But it wasn't a secret, really, then, or your fears. Was it a secret then? It was a secret from myself, still. If it was secret from yourself, you couldn't share it with her because you didn't even know it to yourself. I wouldn't have known what to share with her because also, sadly, I started to cross the line. And I'm a rabbi. Wow. I'm a rabbi in Columbus, Ohio, teaching five, six times a week. We had three kids in rapid succession as good rabbis do. Wow. And again, that public persona piece, we were this model couple. We never fought. We were best friends. But there was this very toxic core at the center of our marriage, both in terms of the secret I was keeping from her and the ways I was, well, cheating on her, but also in how deeply unhappy she was and how, understandably, on the surface, she had this great guy who everybody loved and treated her well and listened to her and went shopping for her and was very like, you want me to change the diaper, I'll change the diaper. But at the core essence of right marriage is a sexual relationship, it's not a friendship, was failing her repeatedly. And she was wow. in incredible pain, rejection, misery. And she verbalized it with you. You knew of it. Of course she verbalized it, but I kept spinning. Now, at the time, this is Columbus, Ohio, there are no Orthodox Jewish therapists. I actually got connected to a therapist who is my therapist till this day. Oh, what? An amazing woman who had never met an Orthodox Jew in her life. Oh, wow. And had this experience with, with what, 98? In 1998. Wow. Of this white shirt, yarmulke-wearing guy coming into her office who wouldn't shake her hand because I was too religious to Wait, so women. you went alone without telling your ex-wife? No, my ex-wife knew I was going to therapy, but it was to work on the child and stuff. But you were going to therapy to figure out what your stuff are. Why are you not giving her sexual intimacy that she's looking right, for? exactly. And... I went in and I presented it to her the way I thought, more a sex addiction than being gay, but I love my wife. Did you really tell yourself that story? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Sex addiction to to men? So I didn't use the term sex addiction because, again, it was the late 90s. No one was using that word, right? It's funny, ironically, I treat sex addiction today. But something like compulsive behavior it was compulsive behavior. That was compulsive behavior is the way I looked at it. An addiction, maybe. I just, I just want to jump forward a little bit to say something. I called my therapist like two years ago. I'm like, can I ask you a question? Why didn't you confront me more with the reality, right? Is he a psychoanalyst? 
She's not a psychoanalyst, but she said to me, she goes, I think I know the answer to the question. I just, she calls me Mordecai. She goes, I just want to go back to my notes. She's very old school. She has paper mm-hmm. notes. She goes, I want to go back to my notes from your first session. She called me back three days later. She goes, I have the piece of paper from the first session. And she said, I will never forget what happened. She said, you walked into my room, said hello. And before you told me anything you said, and I wrote it in big letters on top of the page, I'm not gay. And so she said to me, she's she's a very wise, very patient woman. And it's also something incredibly powerful for me to have someone who's been a witness to the whole story. She said, you could not see it. She said, I could have hit you over the head with it, but you just would have run screaming. Get to be ready to hear it. And she get to work with you in order to get there on your own versus her telling you. Yeah. And so this goes on. We were in Columbus for five years. Five years. You're seeing this therapist for five years? Yes. What happened to Mati when he walked in the house to see his wife? Mati disappeared. Mati disappeared. Then, now that disassociation, flat out disassociation. And when you went into yeshiva, it was a different... Flat out disassociation. I found out afterwards that I was almost caught numerous times. And I just was so disassociated. Oh, like so you I weren't thought... even afraid of being caught. You were, I wasn't because were... I was completely disassociated. Yeah, I, took cra- I took crazy risks in terms of what it would have meant if someone would have looked at me and said, Rabbi Sostrick, what the hell are you a doing? Rabbi. I was completely disassociated. Okay. 9-11 happened, though, and like a lot of people, I was very shaken up. And it did create a kind of, not necessarily healthy, but a kind of spiritual revival in me where I tried to move my public persona and internal persona closer. And after 9-11, I actually, from a behavior management perspective, stopped the compul- what I was calling compulsive sex. Like I stopped doing those things. So in my mind, the treatment was working. And it was w- with a therapist. So you were thinking, oh, this therapy is working. Right. But she still didn't say maybe you're gay. No, especially again, because I was coming in and I was like, wow, this is amazing. We finally figured out the compulsive behavior. But years later, years, you're years in therapy and, and there's nothing. Four years in. No, because I was moving further away from the idea I was gay. Because in my mind, it was like, oh, so I had this like spiritual awakening, like the whole world had 9-11. And I translated it into behavioral change. Great. I'm healed. Like that was literally, actually, somewhere I have a letter I wrote to her. Because we decided to move to Israel to make Aliyah. And I have a letter I wrote to her before moving of, thank you so much. You've helped me heal. You've helped me become the husband I want to be. Like, And I'm- did you? Did your ex-wife feel that? Was she saying, oh, you're a different? I'm very, very reluctant to speak to my ex-wife's experience. And inside, what did you feel? I was healed. Great. This is what I wanted. You felt good. I felt good. I felt good enough to decide to move to Israel, make Aliyah. Why Israel? We had lived there the first year and married. We loved it. The intifada was going on. I just felt very drawn to Israel. And... I had the opportunity because I was very well connected with pretty wealthy people in Columbus to fundraise. I had also gotten, during this time, I'd gotten my MSW. Mm. And I basically, and this is insane when I talk about it in hindsight, because I was 27 years old. Who the hell was I? I fundraised from the Columbus community enough money to go into Ramapay Chemesh with money in the bank to run a nonprofit counseling center for two years the day I went. And what was your counseling for? Marriage? I was doing marriage counseling. I was doing trauma counseling. I had been trained in EMDR already. Mm. Wow. So you were finding meaning through your struggle also. I was finding meaning in my work, but it wasn't healthy meaning because I was... Right, right. I'm saying you created a life that was padding yourself very well. But very 
very external. And especially we landed in Israel and on day one, we were, I was this very public figure day one because I literally took out ads in all the local newspapers opening a new nonprofit counseling center. People were like, who is this guy? Where did he come from with the money? And now any kind of change is traumatic. <laughs> Moving to Israel in the middle of the Intifada. What ended up happening in Israel is that the split actually, I thought I was cured, right? I thought I was healthy. And the split started to become much more dramatic right after we made Aliyah. My behaviors came back with a vengeance. But now for the first time, the cracks started appearing because this was the first time that I allowed myself to consider maybe I was gay. And there's the first time the thought came into my head. The first time. The first time. The first time. Remember what I announced when I walked into my therapist's office. So the first time as a 29-year-old man in Israel with four kids was the first time that I allowed myself to consider maybe I'm gay. And a very small part of me for the first time began to consider that maybe blowing up my life would make me happier. But the largest part of me was like, no, terrified of the idea. Like you saw freedom, but you're like, okay, but how do I get to that freedom? I'm going to have to swim through the ocean in major, major chaos. And how am I going to get through that? Like, how am I going to get through the storm? Yeah. Because again, right? So I was the head of the Beit Shemesh Counseling Center. At that point, I was the director of social services for Netflix, one of the big nonprofit. I was this very public guy. Obviously, if I left my wife because I'm gay, all of that goes away, right? Of course. But the cracks started appearing enough. So what ended up happening was that I had an office in Jerusalem where I was like for small private practice I had. And I actually, that friend from Mary Israel, he was living in Israel at the time as well. And I called him and told him I needed to talk to him about something. Were you in touch the whole time? We had been in touch. We had gotten married around the same time. We had kids around the same time. We'd been in touch. He's living married in Israel. He's living married in Israel. He had become more right-wing. So we had drifted apart, but we were in touch. And I called him, and if I remember correctly, I had to get pretty drunk to say it all out to him. And he was the first person I said, I think I'm gay. Wow. Now, you felt safe with him. I don't know. Honestly, I think I knew I needed to do something. And I asked him, I felt so much shame and fear. I couldn't bring myself to, to tell my Rebbe in Baltimore, who had known there were issues in the marriage, had been speaking to me and my ex-wife all along. But he had never known the secret at the middle. Right. To tell him, like I'd ask him to make the phone call first so that I could call him when he already knew and not have to say it out loud again to him. And why did you want to say it to the rabbi? Why was that an important part of your journey? Because in my mind, I thought, okay, if I'm ready to face this, I can face it in a way where I can get what they call reparative therapy, get treatment for what they call same-sex attraction, and somehow keep my marriage in my life. Oh. I was trying to fix, I was like, okay, I'm finally ready to name the problem, but let me fix the problem. Oh, it's not accepted. It's how do I fix and change it to not be gay. Right. Oh, that's why you went to your rabbi, fix me. And before I tell you what happened, when I told my friend, I just want to say something to that point, a detail I wasn't thinking of before. When I told him, I remember he got very quiet. And he said to me, now I understand what happened when we were in Yeshiva. But I was still so disconnected from my own secret 
I didn't understand what he meant literally for 10 years. So it took me 10 years after that meeting to what? understand what he meant. I thought he meant, oh, you used to disappear to go do things. I did not understand that he intuitively grasped the second I said it on that. Oh, now I understand why our relationship was so intense. Wow. It took me 10 years. 10 years. Wow. Are you still close to this friend? No. Oh, you're not friends. No. And it looks like it's a painful no. Yeah. My rabbi began to get involved in the reparative therapy and immediately. And for the first time, he started encouraging me to tell my ex-wife that the secret had to be told to her. But again, everything I was being told was to tell her that I was struggling with same-sex attraction. I needed a specific type of therapy. I would. How do you break this to a wife? Hey, I can tell you how to do it in a very, very, very bad way. Wow. Like somebody that you love and respect. But also somebody that I've been betraying from day one of our marriage. What I finally happened is it just built and built and built. And the way I told her, which is, again, this is a lesson in how not to tell your wife of eight and a half years, is I wrote her a card. Oh, my God. Telling her I was same-sex attractive. Did not mention at all any kind of cheating or betrayal. How many years are you living in Israel? At the time, close. A little over two. And you're running Nefesh Benefesh? Social services department. Oh my goodness. You're like, okay, I'm all in. I'm all in. That's it. It's too painful to keep the secret. It's just too painful. But I told it in a horrible way. I handed her a card and left the house. I was a coward. So I just completely disconnected from the consequences of what I told her. I disconnected from how utterly, utterly inside out, upside down betrayed she felt that her rabbi, community figure husband, was gay, had been cheating on her, is saying he's not gay. So you didn't tell her? He had to ask me and get the information. Once she asked me, I told her. Oh, you didn't lie and say no? No, no, I didn't. No, I didn't lie. I didn't lie and say no. Once she asked me, I told her. I was honestly, I was out of touch with reality. And again, from a trauma, as a trauma therapist, I understand what happened. Fancy term, I went into a severe disassociative state and she divorced me. Let's go back to that day. You hand her the card. I want to understand what went on there for you, for her, for the family. I handed her the card and I left the house and I said, call me when you're ready. Do you think you were giving her space in your subconscious? Okay, I'm going to, what, what, you don't even know. I, I don't even know. And I, I don't actually, I don't want to dwell on the story. It's, okay. So did she have a million questions? Like, like she got her confirmation that she's been waiting for the whole, yeah. all along. No, I, I think it was that. I don't want to speak to her experience. And I, I think that we were both in a state of traumatic shock. And she didn't say, let's work on it. I was so in my own denial. I don't even know the answer to that question because I was just sure she wanted to work on it because why wouldn't she? I told her she had to, so she was going to. That's the degree of denial I was in at that point. What did you want her to say? Okay, great. I'll support you while you go through therapy and we'll stay married. I'm happily ever after. Oh, you didn't want out. You wanted her to know and work with you on changing that you're not gay. Yeah. Oh, you wanted her support, but you just said the secret within the marriage is too difficult. I need her to be on Team Mati on doing the revision. So come along with me. Zero consideration for what she would want. Zero consideration for how betrayed she was feeling. A complete state of disassociating. Wow. But so you were not looking to explode your life. And you were not. You were not looking to just set yourself free. Right. No. I was looking to stay married get reparative therapy. 
I was so disconnected from what I'd done that I couldn't, it didn't even occur to me that she wouldn't want to do that. You were so consumed by your own journey that you didn't even think about her for a second. Yeah. And to her enormous credit, she did think about her own journey. I'm speechless. It's amazing that I know you almost, you say it's almost 20 years and I didn't know the story. So where were you when she left? What was happening to Mati when the divorce happened? Did Beit Shemesh know about this? What happened to the community? Were they starting Team Mati, Team X Mati? What happened then, and this has taken us an hour to get to what I really wanted to say, but what happened then I think was even more toxic than what led to the original set of circumstances. Because what happened then was this very, very bizarre scenario where a combination of a beautiful thing, which is my ex-wife, who is a mala, an angel, who made a decision on the spot in the depths of hell that she was never going to speak negatively about me to anybody because we had four children to each other. And and I cannot stress enough how superhuman that is. Beyond, do. like beyond. Have your whole world com- crumble after trying to work on it and be optimistic and just that's beyond. That I don't even think angels do that. And with all the therapy and self-compassion I can have for myself, let's be very clear. Let me say this finally out loud after 20 years. I am the bad guy, period. In a very, like, why did they get divorced? Because he was gay and hid it from her for eight and a half years, right? So that's a beautiful thing that she did in terms of how it allowed us to co-parent and how my children have never felt their parents pitted against each other. And she was co-parenting as somebody that lived across the street from you. She was co-parenting in the most beautiful way, which is like mind-blowing for the amount of pain she went through to co-parent in that way. And it was all about the children. It was really all about the children. So that is a beautiful thing. What is extraordinarily toxic is that the messages that we both got from the minute I handed her the gift, both explicit messages from rabbis, community leaders, therapists, and this very implicit built-in message, and you can talk to this because you did live across the street from me, was this. By the way, I'm just going to say, because I live, Mati was by us. We became very close friends. We were on Shabbat together, on weekends together, almost every other week, like with the families. Too. And Matana, by the way, is the best cook on the planet, just parenthetically. <laughs> and I didn't know. I didn't know you were gay until you moved away eight or 10 years later. But so what makes you unique, Matana, and I'll say it the way I see it, and you can tell me to shut up is you live in the community, but you're not really a part of the community. I'm not. I'm definitely. People say I live in my little bubble on 361. My bubble of the, I'm not one of those that care. And so what made you safe to me, what I intuited, was that you were not part of what I experienced as this very toxic culture of secrecy and shame. Because my experience from the community at large, the non-Matanas, yeah. was that everybody knew. Besides us. I wonder if even Ari knew. You see, we don't even talk. Ari often says, we don't talk about people. We don't talk about people unless it has to do with us personally. Until today, I didn't even ask him if he knew. Where everybody knew, Mm. but nobody talked about it. And the contract for me was, we will let you live, let you, which again, is just so toxic to feel like you're being allowed to live in the community as as long as you're not public about being gay, which I wasn't. Who was telling you this? So some of it was a very strongly 
unstated message, but communities give messages about what is okay to talk about and what's not okay to talk about. But some of it was rabbis said it to me pretty much flat out. I was pressured to sign a divorce agreement that very much made that explicit, um, that I couldn't be out. Oh, the in the agreement, it said you may not... It didn't say I couldn't be out. I don't want to get into the technical wording, but it was designed in a way to not allow me to be out. Did you want to even at the time? At the time, I didn't want to, but I, I think, again, I think that when you say hindsight, right, I didn't realize what that would do to basically lose my whole life. Because just to be clear, the day I got divorced, yes, I lost my marriage. I also lost my job. On the same day, I lost my marriage, my career, my country. I made Aliyah to stay. So it was a staggering amount of loss. So fortunately, I was very tunnel focused on my kids. Like I need to just be a father. So I moved back to America. I took a crappy job in America. I just had to build myself up again. How did you even do that? Like, you make it sound like it's so simple. Your whole life falls apart. You're at war with yourself, acceptance. Like, the acceptance part is still at war because you were sure you're going to be working with the rabbi on it. Like, how did you have the strength to get up in the morning and face? My kids. My kids. I just held on to my kids at the terror of them not having me in their lives. That's it. Like, I'll just do whatever it takes. I also went to reparative therapy for close to a year after my divorce. With the same therapist from Ohio? No, no, with the therapist who specialized in. When did you go back to her? After I was done with the private therapist. Mm. So for a year? A year. You're trying to fix myself, yeah. And I think that there was a part of me still in denial that thought if I do this therapy and it works, we'll get remarried and somehow pick up. Oh, really? Was there a lot of shame towards her? Like a lot, a lot of shame when you spoke to her? There was a lot of toxic burial of the shame. I don't feel good about my behavior right after the divorce. And again, I think that what ended up happening was that the community saw, like you just mentioned, this beautiful co-parenting relationship. And so many people would comment like you did. It was almost like a running joke. But everybody knew you were saying? Everybody yeah. knew? Yeah. Everybody knew, but like we would go to parent-teacher conferences that would be like a running joke because one teacher every time would inevitably say something like, oh, the Salzburgs, they get along better than most of the married couples that we see. But did they know? Most people knew. And you were not, and you had no problem getting into schools over here knowing that? Uh, so behind the scenes, there were problems. And I very quickly learned that the only way I would be allowed and some of this is myself giving that power, but again, hindsight, the only way I'd be allowed to be in my kid's life was if I stayed closeted and I played the game. But while that was happening, nobody would associate with me. You were one of two families that had me over for Shabbat dinners. And again, in hindsight, I was the object of so many halakhic questions mm -hmm. in an area. And also, because of the circumstances, I posited myself from my kids. And I was guided to do so by multiple therapists, by multiple rabbis. They can't handle it. They're growing up in this community. And I want to say something about that, because this is something I've thought a lot about in terms of how I want to present. I'm not sitting here today saying, how could you tell me to do that? I understand very well why they told me to do that. What I want people to understand, though, is the unintended consequences of that. 
because I was told so strongly I needed to closet myself, two things happened. One personal, one with my kids. I'll start with the easier one to talk about, the personal. I went back into the closet, which means I allowed myself to become a Rebbe in a day school, at a very modern Orthodox day school, North Shore Hebrew Academy. I allowed myself to become Rabbi Salzburg again. Oh, wow. And become a Judaic studies teacher, where once again, there'd be huge consequences in my life if this got out. And it just pressured me again to go back into the secrecy. Now, the big difference this time is that internally, I was becoming more and more integrated, more accepting that this is who I am, more understanding of my no longer being disassociated from myself starting to unravel my sexuality, starting to look back at those relationships and understand what they were, starting to really just understand that all of this was I was gay in the late 80s in the Black hat community and could not see it, began to join. There is a community of from and formerly from Orthodox Jews made up for the first time in my life, a group of friends where in those spaces, I wasn't disconnected. I wasn't in a cloud of secrecy and shame. So you were living a double life, or triple even, like the professional, the children, and getting to know yourself. Like you were learning to get to know yourself. I was living a double life with one very, very, very big difference that behind closed doors for the first time I wasn't. I knew who I was, and I could let myself see it. And so that made it more tolerable, but I agree, in hindsight, again, no less toxic. At what point did you decide, okay, I'm not fixing the fact that I'm gay. I'm accepting that I'm gay. It was a year and a half after my divorce. And what was that like pivotal moment? It was just a buildup. It was just time. It was just time. It was a buildup. I remember exactly where I was. It was a weekend. I didn't have my kids. I was alone in my apartment on Shabbat. And I just realized, wow. And I remember that I had given a class on homosexuality and Judaism when I was in the Kola. That's how disassociated I was in front of my ex-wife. I gave this class on homosexuality and Judaism to a couple who had a gay nephew and just wanted a perspective. And I remember, and I know it was Shabbat, but I remember burning that. That was a very... And so I reached out and started to form a community. But you're right about the double life. And I'm lucky that my career at North Shore ended without me being publicly outed, although it came close to it a few times. What does that mean? The same way you got phone calls. Someone was uncomfortable, hurt, and they wanted you fired. Yeah. It didn't end up that way. It was made very clear to me that while the administration at the time supported me personally. They knew the administration knew you didn't hide it from them? I did hide it from them originally. When it was revealed to them, I didn't deny it. When they came to me and said, someone told us this. I see a pattern with you that with your wife, with yourself, with the school that you don't lie. I'll keep my secrets to myself and I don't have to feel that I have to share it. But if you're going to tell me, I'm going to tell you the truth. If you're going to ask me, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's very profound to hear you say that. I I, want to, I'll get back to the story in a second and I'll tell you why. Because one of the most hurtful things to me is that I've been labeled a liar for 20 years now. And I know my truth. I actually don't. I keep secrets and I felt that I've had to keep secrets. And I think there's such a big difference between telling a lie versus there is living a lie to ourselves and to the world, but saying if someone says to you, 
I see it with all the stories. But also, why do you think I kept my job? Because when the principal called me and said, someone just called me and told you that you're gay, I didn't start. I said, yeah. I remember where I was standing on the street and I said, it's true. And I understand that you may need to fire me, but let me tell you my story and then make a decision. And would they kept you? They did keep me, but I want to, I want to say something about that before I get to the more painful reality with my children. Mm-hmm. I taught at North Shore for 10 years. During those 10 years, I became more and more comfortable with myself and my sexuality and my truth. I began the relationship that I'm in till this day. I understand that given those set of circumstances, why an Orthodox day school would not want me on their staff, particularly for Judaic studies. I don't necessarily like it, but I understand. I also know, and I <laughs> I hope you're knowing that I'm not an arrogant person, you'll take what I'm about to say in the spirit of what I'm about to say. I was very, very good at my job at Northrop. I was a very well-loved and respected teacher. The entire time I was there, and it just built and built until I left, and again, I'm glad I left on my terms, and it wasn't this another blow up in my life from the outside. I lived with this very, very clear and becoming more and more clear awareness that if this information got out, none of it would matter. I had to sit and listen to other teachers be homophobic. I had students who were, you could see students who were struggling themselves because it was a middle school, and I would watch the way other. By the way, I was brave enough to be very clear that in my classroom, there will be no homophobia. There'll be no racism, no homophobia. Like I didn't single out. I was just like, we're not going to put people down. But I also knew that if it came out, that was it. People will disagree with what I'm about to say, and that's okay. But I I, I want to say this. The thing I always used to think about is that, so if it became public knowledge, it felt to me, and I don't know because it never happened, nobody or very few people would stop and say, does this change anything that he did as a teacher? The things that I've been accused of, a liar, I'm not. A child molester, I'm not. I was in education for over 10 years. If I had done something, God forbid, it would have come out. But these things, the lack of ability for people to be true to themselves just creates a toxicity. And to me, it becomes a question of what do you value, right? So you have this teacher who you're complimenting of the moon, who parents would say the nicest things to. And then in my mind, I'd hear them say something homophobic or put down gay people. And I'm sitting there thinking, and hi, the same guy you just credited with turning your daughter's life around. It's so painful and dehumanizing. And I remember the day I left, right? So every year at the end of the year, there's always like a tribute paid to the teachers who are leaving. And they don't usually get up to speak. Somehow I ended up standing there to speak. And I took a deep breath. And I was—I had no intention of coming out that day. I, I wanted to say something without saying it. And over the years, I've become very good about it. So I, I said something that was heartfelt and very vulnerable, but did not come out. At this point, your kids still don't know you're gay? At that point, I think only my oldest knew. Well, I'll get to my kids in a second. No, but I'm saying, were you afraid that it's going to... No, I honestly, I was exhausted. And I couldn't deal with the public flaw. I didn't need it. I didn't need it. But here's what I remember. I said what I said. And teachers came over to me in tears after, and they're like, you're, you're going to miss you. But what I also remember is that the two people who knew in the school came over to me after. It's a deeply painful memory, and I apologize because I never talked this out with them. And they're like, oh, thank God. We were so nervous you were going to say it when you stood up there. And I just, that felt awful to me. And it was like, we need you to keep the secret. 
we love you, but we need you to keep a secret. One, two colleagues who knew. And the other thing that's just really sad is I taught there for 10 years. And I know people thought I was good friends with them. I wasn't because nobody knew me, especially once I started my relationship. I couldn't talk about my life. We went through a real medical scare together at one point when I was teaching there, a real three-month hell. I couldn't tell anyone what I was going through. I was sleeping in the hospital. It happened to be North Shore near North Shore. So I would just go to work, but I'd have to put a smile on my face. And the corrosiveness of that, and the saddest part is, is I, I haven't gone back to the school because I can't bring myself to put myself in the situation again. And I also just don't have the energy, although if anyone's listening to us, it'll happen. But I didn't have the energy to go in and make an announcement. I wear a wedding band. It's just sad. And again, it's not that I don't understand the Orthodox community's dilemma when it comes to gay people. But I, I want people to hear the humanity of the story. Yeah, the painful part of going through it, even though I'm sure a lot of people are going to listen and say, wait, Mati, why did you go teach in an Orthodox place? You could have gone to a public school and no one, right? I'm sure people are going to be thinking, and I'm thinking out loud what people are saying in their minds, because I know. And they're saying, like, you put yourself in that situation. I thought about it a lot of times. I had a lot of gay friends who said, I got that from both sides. And it's true. And at a certain point, it was toxic for me to stay. And I did leave, right? And I probably did stay longer than I should have. Oh, you left on your own? Yeah, I left on my own. I wasn't, yeah, I left when I was ready to go into my private practice. But what I want to say to that, though, is the following. I, again, want the same people who are saying that. And I hear their point. I'm not argumentative there. But here's the other piece of it, right? You also have a Jewish educator who really connected with kids and adults. And there are, I have thousands of students out there. I don't have answers because I understand the dilemma. I'm a well-educated Jew. But why is the baseline, it's okay that I can't be in Jewish education? What about the other side of it? Part of why I stayed in Jewish education is because I was good at it. I had a passion for it. Unfortunately, I don't anymore. And I've had my own theological, my own relationship with Judaism journey through this is my between me and God. I'm not going to talk about it now. I, I just want people to hear the other perspective. The painful part. It's not just about my pain. I appreciate that, but it's not just about my pain. It's about the reducing people to their secrets or their labels. Or they're not secrets or what they are sharing with the world and then they're labeled and ostracized. And again, and for someone who has really been on a journey to have integrity, to be labeled the liar is the most painful thing of all. When I was in yeshiva, as in many yeshivas, everybody gets really drunk on Purim. The doors get locked. Basically, you have a bunch of drunk, say for legal purposes, everyone's over 21. Nobody's over 21. A bunch of drunk teenagers running around on a campus safe, taking away car keys. Nobody's allowed to drive. And so you run in and out of different rabbis' houses. I was drunk off my rocker one Purim, and I went into a Rebbe who's known as a very stoic, non-emotional but very watchful person. Brilliant, brilliant man. And I will never forget that. I'm drunk and I'm screaming and I'm talking to his wife and she's the big shabchan and I'm like, oh, set me up with this. And he does like this to me very quietly, pulls me over. I think he was sitting down and I crouched down to be eye level with him and he looks at me and he has a very piercing stare. And he says, Mati, you are an Ish Amas. You are a man of truth. I instantly sobered up. I will never forget those words. 
But my whole life has been a quest to find that truth. And I was trying to find my truth. Yeah, of course. But not for others. I don't, I, not for others. But the way secrets and shame operate in my experience is that they create labels and presumptions and a reduction of humanity. I don't speak to that friend anymore because I'm oversimplifying a little bit because the rabbi told him he can't. He can't. So he was told not to be in a relationship with you. Not talk to me. And did you ask him, would you want to? Or it's not even an option to ask what you want? It's so dehumanizing. In many of those situations, I don't feel like a person. I feel like a piece of meat that some milk fell on. Or I feel to be a little more graphic. Wow, what an analogy. A piece of meat? That's a milk fed on. And, and you go to the rabbi and say, what do you do with it? Wow. Wow. And then there's my kids. Because, again, I understand why we were told to keep the secret and not coming here in anger or how could you or you should have known better. Because I understand that at the time, no one knew better. I just want people to learn from my family's experience, particularly my kids' experience. And the story I'll tell is my oldest because I have her explicit permission to tell it. Before you tell the story, when did they find out and how they did they find out? What was the decision between you and your ex-wife to tell them or not to tell them or to expose the amount of secrets? It was a very painful, conflicting decision. My ex-wife honestly would have preferred that I never told them at the time. Again, in hindsight, she may feel differently, but that's hers to tell. How old were they? So my oldest was told in 12th grade. Nobody knew until she was young. And... It was a difficult decision. I had been pushing my ex-wife for close to a year before she finally relented. And even when she relented, it was reluctantly. And unfortunately, what happened, at least initially, proved her point. I approached the day I was going to tell my daughter as finally, I can start to just be whole and with integrity. And it was the worst day of her life. And what happened and where the secrecy and shame just destroyed her was that my daughter's experience. She was a very serious student in all-girls school that was planning on going to a pretty serious seminary for a post-year of high school. We were very close in many ways. We had the co-parenting. I was part of every aspect of her life. To her, at age 17, the only way she could comprehend what I was telling her was that her father was this awful liar who tried to make himself look good for 17 years, but was actually this terrible man who willfully kept this secret for the sake of making himself look good. And it caused a complete breakdown for her, completely derailed the rest of her 12th grade, changed her plans for post-high school, destroyed her religiously. She didn't speak to me for close to three years. I didn't go to her high school graduation. You um, specifically, or she yeah, was not? No, me specifically. Me specifically. She was speaking to her siblings. She was speaking to her mother. And what was she saying at the time? Like She couldn't even talk to me. She, she could not talk to me. I now understand what happened to her, and we are close once again, and thank God. Her life is forever changed, but when we, when she was finally ready to speak, and I will say this, she needed to not speak to me for those three years. And as you can imagine, as a parent, months and all those years were hell for me. But I beg any parent whose child says they need space from them, give your child that space. Imagine not going to your oldest child's high school graduation. Oh my goodness, Mati. But there were times that I wanted to say, screw you, I'm the parent, I'm showing up. And thank God I listened to level-headed people in my orbit. 
But did she want you to come knocking on her door? Like, I'm so angry. I don't want to see you, but I want to know more. I want this relationship. No. How did you know that, by the way? Because not everybody's like that. Some people have. Because it was how it was communicated. It was what she needed. Mm. When we finally spoke and I understood what her experience was. And yes, I felt very misunderstood and very not heard. And when she was ready to listen to me, she was able to validate what my experience was, right? Mm -hmm. But I understand her perspective. Right. It was triply painful for me because she lashed out at the person she could lash out, which is the man who kept the secret. And because it took her three years to realize, actually, the man who kept the secret didn't want to keep the secret. The man who kept the secret. She didn't know that. That's my question. She never knew that you wanted to tell. She didn't. People tried to tell her, but she wasn't ready to hear it because she couldn't wrap her head around that. So you told her and from that day, she never spoke to you for three years? We had a few text exchanges, but yeah, pretty much we didn't speak for close to three years. And you didn't see it coming? Oh my God, no. And your ex-wife couldn't explain to her that you did the best you can with? I think, first of all, this became immediately, understandably, deeply re-traumatizing for my ex-wife, watching her daughter go through what she had gone through. But also, my daughter wasn't ready to hear it from her either. She had a relationship with my ex-wife, but I, I, if I remember correctly, she basically told my ex, I don't want to talk about it. She wasn't ready. She wasn't, she wasn't ready. ready. She wasn't ready. Was she shocked? Did she say, I thought so? Like, no, what, she didn't know. She was like, yeah, she didn't know. Nothing. Nothing. Till today, she said, looking back. I don't remember, honestly. Again, fortunately, today, our relationship is no longer about this. I'm bringing up this memory now. We are, we are close as we once were. Again, thank God. And I'm extremely grateful. I'm also extremely grateful both to her for the work she did on herself and just in general that she was able to recover from this. Many people could not. I don't take for granted that she came back to me because it would be understandable if she never would have been able to. You're like, oh my God, I lost one by telling her the truth. What's going to be with the other three? Oddly enough, I knew... I did understand that a lot of it was my daughter's specific personality and our specific relationship. So I knew when it came to my boys, it wouldn't be like that. And it wasn't anything like that. But again, I think that I'm asking people listening to this. I understand that it's going to be easy to focus on the gay man married to another man who left the community and had no business teaching in a day school for as long as he did. I I understand all that. And I understand that People may not, may think I'm letting myself off the hook by claiming that I didn't know I was gay when I was married. I can hold space for all of that. I'm not sitting here saying you need to understand this. People's journeys are their journeys. But I'm just asking people to hear of what happens to an individual and a family, and particularly my children, when a community places a premium on keeping secrets rather than just letting people say things out loud. I don't have an answer for how the firm community deals with gay people. I I understand that there's a Pusuk, and I understand that there's a reality called gay people, and it's a problem. I know that the world has changed a lot since I was that boy in 1986, and I know that, thank God, unless young men would make the choice that I made because they have the internet, because they can listen to this podcast, because there are resources... There's organizations like Eshel, the Penners have an organization, there's Kesher Nafti, which in general is trying to further the idea that from parents can maintain relationships with their kids, even when they disagree with choices they're making. 
So I'm so glad the world has changed. But for my family, A, the change didn't come soon enough. But there are certain aspects of this that still hasn't changed. And there's still too much of, but keep it quiet and keep a secret. And I just ask people to think about what secret keeping does to people and to families. I moved out of Farakoa three years ago, and I moved to a community in New Jersey. And I reached out to the Orthodox Shul, and I had two very intentional things in that communication. One, I was going to announce that I'm a gay man moving with my husband. And two, I was very upfront that I've been very burnt by the community, but I have a son who needs a shul occasionally, and I just want to connect to it. And the response I got from a woman who's now a good friend, she said, no, we're different. I understand. And I said to her, I said, Shira, with all due respect, I don't know you. I don't, you don't know me. She said, try. And meanwhile, at the end of COVID, it was a hard time to move into a community in general. Fast forward three years later, and I am an extremely active, involved member of the shul, which I never thought would happen. And it is a completely transparent relationship. The rabbi and the rabbitson, especially the rabbitson, whose name ironically is from me, we have very open conversations about what we agree on, what we disagree on. And at the same time, I don't need to keep a secret. And... I can't stress enough, right? Because this is part of me too. Going to Shalom Shabbos is part of me. And I didn't even realize I missed it until I had it again. But being able to go into Shul, and in Shul, everyone's doing the same thing, right? I have a sitter like everybody else, I have a homage like everybody else, but not feel the weight of the secret and the toxicity and the what if they know and what can I say and when can I not say. I can just be allows me to be there. And I can, and I understand there are people going to say, but how could they give you an aliyah? I'm not here to answer your halakha childs, but I want rabbis and therapists and maybe parents of LGBT kids or people grappling themselves to just think about what you do to people. And it's not just LGBT people. I'm just speaking from my experience. When you say to them, you're only here if you keep a secret. Your family is only here if you keep a secret. Do you ever ask yourself, what were they so afraid about? Why do they keep the secret? I'm asking you, what are they afraid about? I think that on one level, they're afraid of, if you tell people that we're not going to keep a secret, do we need to accept gay relationships? And again, I don't have an answer to that question. I understand the problem, but I also, and this gets back to me feeling like I'm a piece of meat that some milk fell on, I don't understand the halachic process here like why does someone need to ask a question if they can talk to me or have me at their shabbos table i think in my experience people that ask questions halacha questions is like a mentor not because they want to know what's okay with god you know what i'm confused i don't know tell me what to do that i don't have to think what's uncomfortable and then i would ask the Rabbanan listening to this to consider that Judaism is a thinking man's religion. And maybe it's time to gently tell people it's okay to think for yourself. I can understand the space to ask a Shaila, ask a rabbinic question, can I attend the gay wedding? Like that I understand. If someone feels that they're standing in a space that's kind of consecrating a relationship that they find problematic, I understand that. I don't understand the Shabbos table question. Is it any different than you're saying, like in the Kirov organizations, you'll invite anybody, like they'll say, don't encourage driving, but you're not going to ask them, did you keep Shabbos today? Did you eat on Burger King on the way here? Did you steal? Did you, <laughs> did you steal? 
Did you steal yesterday in business uh, or uh, like a few hours ago in business? That's the one that drives me crazy because everyone knows that homosexual sex is labeled toeva. No one seems to remember that cheating in business is also labeled toeva. And I can think of numerous occasions where I've been in shows where the kiddish is given by someone who just got out of prison for cheating in business, but the rabbi will stand up and blast gay marriage. And I don't understand that. Yeah, it, maybe it does go back to homophobic. I don't know. Or the lack of knowledge. I find with my own journey into finding truth in orthodoxy, the more you don't know, the more you're going to drift away just to protect yourself because you don't know what you're protecting yourself. So just drift away versus go find out, go do the research, go learn. I don't disagree. And, and what I just want to wrap up with is it was not easy for me to say everything I've said here. Oh, my God. I, I don't even know how you did it. It's incredible that you were able to relive it. Like I was with shortness of breath thinking that you're reliving it through your words. You're reliving the trauma. Again, I have a good therapist. I do feel like the trauma's been worked through. But I also, the reason why I'm doing it and I don't take doing it lightly, and I've thought a long time about doing it, is because if someone can listen to this and just think, and just pause a minute and question assumptions and question what you think about someone who's Orthodox and LGBT specifically, or anybody struggling with any issue, and just think about how we can help people feel safer to not keep secrets, and how we can create a community where we tolerate things that we might not, like you said a minute ago, understand or know about. But instead of saying no, the rabbi said no. He said, let me find out about it. What does it mean? Really look into it. And stop giving blanket rules to a set of people. Because again, I understand why we were advised to do the way we could do, but then have the humility to listen to someone 15 years later and say, please stop doing this. If you want to summarize what you wish someone told you 20 years ago, what you wish, and you could say, okay, these are things that I really like looking back at my story. Of course, you had to be where you are because you needed to go through it, but you went through it in order to help others go through it. I wish someone would have said your life is not ending. It's actually just starting. You mean give you strength to, to get through it and accept it? No, 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 no. Allow me to contemplate the reality that good can come from it. Wow. But also allow me to understand that the things that I was scared enough, so terrified of that I completely cut off parts of myself, I could actually create a happy life with. And I wish someone would have said to me, it's okay to push back on the community. And I understand there is no way I could do this at the time, but it's okay. It's safe to connect to what you intuitively know and then choose to act from there. Be a more understanding community. Be a more understanding community. A more kind, not less judgmental community so people can go through this challenging time in a less stressful way and figure it out for themselves. Create space for people to not have secrets. Stop asking people to keep secrets because you're afraid of certain things. Even now, I'm taking a risk. Stop making this be risky. I'm simply telling my story. You don't have to agree with your choices, the choices I've made, and many people will not. And I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Stop making a conversation like this risky for people. 
What if someone would say, okay, you want to jump into the fire? You'll be the first one to break the secret. And you'll probably pave the way for like 100 people or 200 people after you. But you're going to get the slack of breaking the secrets of the community that's not accepting. Fortunately, at this point, on May 11, 2023, I'm not. I'm far from the first person telling this kind of story. No, I'm saying that going back, don't tell people not to keep secrets. Maybe they're saying, I'm not telling them not to keep the secret for my good. I'm telling them for their family that their family shouldn't fall apart, that their kids should be able to have play dates, that their kids should be able to be accepted. If I can hear people say, we're not doing it for Mati, we're doing it for the family. That's a pass-the-buck answer, because the only healthy way to deal with what happened to me when my marriage broke up was to look in the mirror and do some deep soul-searching. So don't put it on me. So maybe the community needs to do some soul-searching, too. That's something, right? I would like to say it this way. I think given the amount of soul-searching that I've done over the last 15 years, I've earned the right to say to the people around me, stop looking at me and maybe look at yourself. I'm not asking you to accept or even understand every choice I've made. I'm asking you to believe me, though, when I tell you I thought long, deep, and hard before I did anything, and maybe it's time for you to do this with all due respect. I understand people mean well. I understand this is a scary topic. I understand that any parent from the community I was a part of that as a kid come to them and say, I think I'm gay, it's terrifying. And I will say this. I have spoken to people my age who are still very much part of the community, who I've been moved to tears listening to these black hat wearing, shake wearing parents saying, no, I want my child to be part of my life. So that means their boyfriend or husband will one day be at my Shabbos table. There has definitely been a shift. And maybe it has happened because of your story beginning. That's what I'm saying. Listen, it has to happen somewhere. And I know you're a parent, too. You understand what I said. I wish it didn't have to happen on the backs of my kids. Yeah, I hear you. Of course, the whole reason we're doing this podcast is not to point fingers, but to educate and to tell people, like, it's hard to accept, especially when the community is not welcoming, but maybe be that one person that would say, okay, I, myself, am going to do my own work and ask myself, what's uncomfortable for me with this? Let me take a step back and say, like, how can I be How can I be the ish, this person that will be accepting and kind? And of, and of course, we're not asking break boundaries that are uncomfortable for you, but ask yourself why they're uncomfortable instead of following the leader. I call it the following the leader syndrome. And I think that's the, the biggest takeaway here that that you wanted to be part of the community. You wanted to not disconnect. And people are like, why would he want to be a part of community if the community is, he's not agreeing with the way the community is living? Because maybe it's not all or nothing. And every single gay person I've spoken to, and I've spoken to at least this point, thousands, obviously, that comes from a firm background feels exactly what you're saying at the core of their soul. So maybe it's not all or nothing. And maybe you can see me. Like, maybe I do like davening with people. And maybe I do keep Shabbos, maybe I don't. But maybe part of the Jewish experience that's familiar and cozy and nice, I want to keep too. And to that question of keeping Shabbos or don't, and I'm sorry, and here's where I'll pull my education, 
That is a bein adam lamakom mitzvah. That is a mitzvah between God and man. So a hundred percent. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that, but at the end of the day, that's something everyone knows an answer to when it comes to their relationship with God, not with other people. Even more, no, I'm saying that it's going to be a lot of black and white. There's going to be a lot of black and white listening to the, like the thinking of if he's not, if he doesn't approve of the way the community is going, why are we going this way? I want to say that there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of color and that, and it's not, oh, I'm gay. So I no longer want to be a part of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, of Hanukkah. It doesn't mean that I'm burning my Judaism and my whole relationship with it. I'll say it even stronger for my own personal self. That's what I want people to hear from you. And I, I will say it even stronger from my personal experience. Are you saying, and I'm pretty sure actually some people are going to hear what I'm about to say, and they're going to say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that's fine. But at least let me put it out there. Let me clarify it for what's going on in your head. Are you saying that because I'm gay, those hundreds of kids shouldn't have learned tower from me. Is that really what you're saying? Oh, I'm I'm sure they're saying that. Okay. I am positive. And I am asking the people who are saying that to take a step back and have humility to at least ask themselves, is it really as black and white as their gut reaction is saying it? And if you end up there, okay, again, I'm no longer in a day school. And if I was in a day school... I just blew up my job. I understand. I'm not here to fight the system. But I would say it that way. Is it that clear to you? And I'm sure they're going to say yes. And that is their choice. And I'm sure they're going to say, listen, if you're teaching the Torah, you have to keep the Torah. And my answer to them would be, who said you're keeping the Torah just because you're not gay? I agree with you. But my reading of the Tanakh is that we have a God and we have founders of our religion that could tolerate gray areas and had arguments and conversations. And I would like the community today to try to do the same thing. And it's okay if they're uncomfortable with it, but there's definitely like a soul searching to do here. And we we're asking people to whatever it is that you're uncomfortable with when it's labeled godly, like what we're doing it in the name of God, step back and say, am I doing it in the name of God? Or am I doing it in the name of fear? Mati, thank you for, wow, I can't believe I know you 20 years and I'm, for the first time hearing with the listeners, the whole story. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the journey of hardship and finding yourself and journey to home and your lessons and willing to put the, there's going to be pushback. We know there's going to be pushback and that's okay. But if uh, Mati was saying, if he can help somebody else that's going through this, and prevent maybe next generational breakdowns because of it. So he was willing to do that. So thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the next generation and the hope that people will listen to understand and, and be more curious, just be more curious. And thank you for creating a space for people to do this in general and specifically for your friendship and acceptance over 20 years, because I don't take people like you for granted in my life on any level. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mati, if people have questions for you or questions in general about an experience that they're going through or a child or a friend or a loved one or themselves. So that is something that is important to me to be able to help people with I, because people were there for me and I take the importance of paying it forward very seriously. I'll give an email address. We'll put the email in the show notes. And reach out to Mati. One thing I could tell you about Mati is the most 
um, reflective human being. He's not afraid of conversation and he'll debate with you in order to get to your truth, not for him to prove himself correct, but to get to your truth. So thank you, Mati. Thank you for sharing and for being here again and for all the work that you do and for paying it forward. Thank you. Bye till next time. Thank you for listening to Understand. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please hit that follow button on your favorite podcast app. This way you don't miss an episode and you help us grow. You are part of our growth. We appreciate your support and we hope you choose to listen to us on our next episode. We'd love to hear from our audience. If there's anything you would like us to research, to talk about, please contact us on our website, listeningtounderstand.com. And if there's any insight that you got from this and you want to share with others and you are happy for us to read it out loud on our show, send us your insights, send us your thoughts. We want to listen to understand. Bye till next time.